Recording in progress. Hello, everyone. So I haven't. Oh, this is really have a cover. So I bought this book, which is the correspondence between Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger on, um, I think it's Abe's Books. It's a used book. I'm just so excited about it. I've only read the foreword by, I guess, the editor. And um, it's their correspondence between 1925 and 75. Their relationship obviously started out when Hannah Rent was a student at the institution where Heidegger was teaching and uh, I think they were lovers, they were friends, there were times when they did not correspond and there was a big break, especially during the time of, uh, you know, I guess the criticism and judgment and political involvement of, of Heidegger and for various other reasons. Uh, and I thought I would do a cold reading. I'm just so excited. I can barely, I feel embarrassed about how happy I am to have this book. Why is it out of print? I think it's out of print because um, I couldn't find it on Amazon. I have a couple of other books as well on their relationships. I have read a lot of Heidegger. I have not read a lot of Arendt. Nothing, you know, cover to cover. I want to. Um, yeah, so let's, let's see how it is. This is 1925 in, oh shoot, these dates. Is this, is this October or is it February? Hold on. I mean, I'm guessing the way, the way the Europeans do. Okay, okay, it's February 9th. All right. <laughs> Dear Miss Arendt, I must come see you this evening and speak to your heart. Everything should be simple and clear and pure between us. Interesting. ambitions. Every, okay, only then will we be worthy of having been allowed to meet. You are my pupil, this is so scandalous, and I your teacher, but that is only the occasion for what has happened to us. I will never be able to call you mine, but from now on you will belong in my life and it shall grow with you. We never know what we can become for others through our being. But surely some reflection can make clear how destructive or inhibiting the effect you might have. The path your young life will take is hidden. We must be reconciled to that. And my loyalty to you shall only help you remain true to yourself. You have lost your disquiet, which means you have found the way to your innermost purest feminine essence. <laughs> it's 2023, I just can't. Someday you will understand and be grateful. Not to me that this visit to my office hour was the decisive step. I'm sorry, it's just so, it's so strange. Um, back from the path toward the terrible solitude of academic research, which only man can endure. 
<laughs> so dramatic, kind of girl, but alright. And then only when he has been given the burden as well as the frenzy of being productive. You know, I should also, I love diaries, journals, correspondences of my eyes being, when I laugh, cry, my eyes burn. <laughs> Not at all. I'm, I'm too giddy to really make this video, but I just, I'm just, sometimes I get so excited about books. I think I spent like $60 on this or something, which is a lot for the current version of me. I also have, what is the other prized possession? Vita Sackville West and Virginia Woolf, I think, which was a gift. I need to read that one as well before, like, on a video. And then, I can't remember the translator, the editor was Marjorie Perloff, maybe, with Wittgenstein's journals during the war when he was writing the Tractatus. goes on okay <laughs> be happy that is now my wish for you is academic research really solitary I guess I love being solitary so I not in a not in a negative way for me only when you are happy will you become a woman who can give happiness and around whom all is happiness, security, repose, reverence, and gratitude to life. And only, I just, ugh, ugh, the male gaze. <laughs> I just can't. I just want to, like, redact some of this. And only in that way will you be properly prepared for what the university can and should give you. That is the way of genuineness and seriousness but not in the forced academic activity of many of your sex. Activity that one day somehow comes apart, leaving them helpless and untrue to themselves. So that's a bit of an egg factor. For it is at the point when individual intellectual work begins that the initial preservation of one's innermost womanly essence becomes decisive. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I think we still live at a time where some women are, you know, feel the opposite of insulted if uh, they're in a discipline where it's basically like a boys club and they're accepted by men. But I just, I just wonder how Arendt read these uh, sentences, these sentiments about gender. Can't read it through our lens, can we? We have been allowed to meet. We must hold that as a gift in our innermost being and avoid deforming it through self-deception about the purity of living. 
We must not think of ourselves as soulmates, something no one ever experiences. Oh wow, okay, so this is pretty intense, I guess. <laughs> You're saying we shouldn't, it means you did. And so, okay, I love that. Um, I think, I cannot and do not want to separate your loyal eyes and dear figure from your pure trust, the honor and goodness of your girlish essence. But that makes, <laughs> you see the disgust on my face, I hope, I hope so. Um, but that makes the gift of our friendship a commitment we must grow with and prompts me to ask your forgiveness for having forgotten myself briefly during our walk. Okay. But just once I would like to be able to thank you and with a kiss on your pure brow, take the honor of your being into my work. Be happy, good girl, your Martin Heidegger. Okay, where are the letters before this? Like, like this, this isn't like the first letter. This isn't like the, you know, the little piece of paper they get in elementary school that says, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe, which also, which actually, oh, okay, no, I won't tell that personal story. Um, it's not about me. Okay, February 21st. 1925. Dear Hannah, why is love rich beyond all other possible human experiences and a sweet burden to those seized in its grasp? Because we become what we love and yet remain ourselves, then we want to thank the beloved but find nothing that suffices. Recording stopped. Recording in progress. Okay, sorry, my allergies are acting up a little bit because it's been super windy here. I detest the wind. Or I would be outside on my balcony reading Sissier because that's what we're supposed to read for next week for our class. Okay, where was I? <laughs> okay, talking about love. We can only think with ourselves. We can only think with ourselves. Then we want to thank the beloved, but find nothing that suffices. Love transforms gratitude into loyalty to ourselves and unconditional faith in the other. That is how love steadily intensifies its innermost secret. Here being close is a matter of being at the greatest distance from the other. Yang Shohan. Distance that's, that lets nothing blur, but instead puts the thou into the mere presence. Transparent but incomprehensible of a revelation. The other's presence suddenly breaks into our life. Byung Chul Ruby should have quoted this in The Agony of Eros. That's what I think. This little, this little paragraph right here. No soul can come to terms with that. A human fate gives itself over to another human fate, and the duty of pure love is to keep this giving as alive as it was on the first day. If you had met me when you were 13, 
If it had been after only a decade, such speculation is futile. No, it has a few that makes me very uncomfortable. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. What is the point of that? No, it has happened now when your life is silently preparing to become that of woman when you will take the intuition, longing, blossoming, and laughter of girlhood into your life and keep it as a source of goodness, of faith, of beauty, of unending womanly giving. And what can I do at this moment? I can take care that nothing in you shatters. I mean, it's got such a, like a fatherly, paternal um, tinge to it. I mean, he is 17 years older than her, which is, which is, I feel like, a lot I have to say so um, but I just I just don't know if the paternalistic kind of tone is, is called for regardless he, he seems like he's putting up a, okay we're not gonna critique this we're not gonna critique this okay let's just read That any burden and pain you have had in the past is purified, that what is foreign to you and what has happened to you yields. The opportunities for womanly existence, I hope it's not like this throughout the whole thing. <laughs> like, maybe like culturally attitudes toward gender evolves when we get to like the 60s, I don't know. It's the 20s. The opportunities for womanly existence open to you are completely different from what the student in you believes. Oh, well, I mean, I guess that's just realistic, maybe. And much more positive than she suspects. Many may empty criticism fall away from you and arrogant negativity recede. Well, I guess that's kind of nice. May masculine inquiry learn what respect is from simple devotion. May one-sided activity learn breadth from the original unity of womanly being. <laughs> if I was Iran, I would just I would just be like, can you please stop talking about my womanly being? Like, I don't know. <laughs> please, if you want this to go on. Curiosity, gossip, and scholarly vanity cannot be eradicated. Only woman can lend nobility to free intellectual life through the way she is. When the new semester comes, it will be May. Lilac will leap over the old walls, and tree blossoms will well up in the secret gardens, and you will enter the old gate in a light summer dress. Summer evenings will come into your room and toll the quiet serenity of our life into your young soul. Soon they will awaken the fl- I'm sorry, it's just- <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, they're, they're lovers. It's okay. He's talking about her dress. I just feel like it's inappropriate, but maybe as we go on and she gets older. 
Soon they will awaken the flowers your dear hands will pick and the moss on the forest floor that you will walk on in your blissful dreams. And soon on a solitary climb, I will greet the mountains whose rocky stillness will meet you someday and in its lines, what I have kept of your essence will return. And I will visit the alpine lake and look down from the steepest steepness of the precipice into its silent depths. Your M. So what I read in the foreword, it says that there's only about 25% of this correspondence is from Arendt. Most of it is from Heidegger because I think that it was saying that um, Arendt kept all of Heidegger's letters to her, but Heidegger did not keep all of Arendt's letters to him. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just not sentimental. Um, maybe it's because he was married. I don't really know what his wife thought about this relationship or how much she knew. Maybe we'll see. I think she is mentioned. I haven't read, you know, a I have a biography. I do. So maybe that would have been good to read before this, but I don't know. Okay, still February. New letter. Dear Hannah, the demonic struck me. The silent prayer of your beloved hands and your shining brow enveloped it in womanly transfiguration. Nothing like it has ever happened to me. In the rainstorm on the way home, you were even more beautiful and great. I would have liked to wander with you for nights on end. Take this little book as a token of my thanks. Think of it also as a symbol of this semester. Oh, that's nice. Did you give her a book? What does the note say? I do not like, but I have to go to the back of the book for notes. Just, you heard of a footnote. Sources. Oh, I don't even know what notes are. Oh, okay. Number three. Oh, okay. Oh, there's lots of notes. Okay, I understand. Let's see. Oh, okay, so let's read these notes. The first note is Hannah Arendt began her studies in philosophy, Protestant theology, and classics at the University of Marburg in the winter semester of 24-25. Heidegger had been teaching philosophy there since the winter semester of 23-24. Okay, it's just the academic year before. In June 1923, he had been appointed professor ad personam for an associate professor of philosophy position. Oh, the book is unknown. Oh, it makes me really sad. I think book gifts are the best when they're like a personal gift. Like a personal. I can show them if you ask again from your iPhone. Oh my gosh. Was... <laughs> That's never happened for me. Is my, my iPhone speaking to me? <laughs> That's a weird intrusion of AI. I, I swear that this never happened. I don't know. Did you hear that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What to, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what to call you. I wasn't asking for help. 
I know that some people have this kind of tech, but I feel like I have to whisper now. <laughs> okay, hopefully that doesn't happen again. I just, I just want to know the book. Okay, um, please, Hannah, give me a few more words. I cannot let you go like this. You will be very busy before your trip, just a little and not beautiful writing. As long as you write, all that matters is that you wrote it. Oh, that's nice. That's so encouraging. I am looking forward to seeing your mother. Dear H, on the other side of the path we went up, I just had two lovely hours with Husserl. And uh, in another warm regards, letter to follow little notes. Okay, here we go. This is March 21st, 1925. Dear Hannah, the winter has been glorious up here and I have had some wonderful and exhilarating outings. But for a week now, I have been back at work and we are already getting ready to go back down into the valley on March 24th. Often I hope you are as wonderfully calm as I am up here. The solitude of the mountains, the quiet routine of the mountain people, the elemental closeness of the sun, storm, and sky, the simplicity of a trail on a wide slope covered in deep snow, all of this keeps the soul at a further remove from all the being that has been dissected and analyzed to pieces. This is the homeland of pure joy. Here there is no need for anything interesting, and the work takes on the rhythm of a man chopping wood in the distant forest. So I wanted to take you along with me to all of this when you accidentally cross my path once more as you were leaving. But I also knew that accidentally was in quotes that you would be going home with great joy in your heart. And so my thoughts about you subsided, although every day I renew my hope that you are recovering from the semester. Oh, difficulties of academia. It seems to me that from within yourself, you will freely overcome everything that was out of balance, all the friction, unpleasantness, and stress. I mean, people, women today are still talking about, I just want to uh, talk, Put on by the Boston Review and philosopher uh, has some numbers after it. Uh, they they put on like these Zoom remote sessions. I think every Monday, sometimes there's two a week, and there was this book that just came out about women and philosophy. This thing's really interesting that I have in my Amazon cart now to buy some point I don't know because um I just uh I'm kind of in the red <laughs> right now because I just moved I think it's interesting um hold on I'm gonna I'll be right back recording stopped Recording in progress. Okay, I think what I was saying is that if 
women are still talking about how difficult it is to be in philosophy today, it must have been very hard in the 20s. Although from my perspective, I think it's, it's like a great time to be in philosophy. I know that when I was going to my meetup group, sometimes I would be like the only lady and I mean, it's, it's hard not to notice that, like why bring up gender? I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's just notice difference. Um, but I'm taking my first, well, not my first, but in some ways, my first philosophy class um, at the university. So I've been doing an independent study. I teach intro to philosophy, yada, yada, yada. But my PhD is in religion, not philosophy. Now I'm doing philosophy. Um, I don't know. I think we have a good mix of diversity in our classes, and I don't feel... any certain way I feel very you know supported so so I don't know and I back when I was teaching intro to philosophy which I hope to get to teach again um I don't know I just I love that class but I haven't been able to teach it the last semester um it just hasn't been offered to me I had students, you know, female and male students who were very interested in female philosophers. So, I don't know. <clears throat> so, um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, it's like good positive energy, but I'm also glad that people are writing books about women in philosophy because I think that's great want to know. Okay. I was very pleased to read that Lichtenstein was still coming to see you. What was unpleasant about the Husserl evenings was the striving to top each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's academia. So I was all the more pleased that you sat quietly in the corner. Oh, right. I feel like that's a little bit insulting. I enjoyed talking to Lichtenstein most of all. I mean, I'm sure Hannah Arendt didn't want to sit silently in the corner. I'd like to hear her response to that, personally. Now that he will not be coming, I will probably not continue the evenings with the same group. Oh, salons. I would quite like to have some kind of circle become a tradition, so would I. But that depends less on the topic than on the right people. So true. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I want to teach the young ones again in the summer. That's interesting. Did Heidegger ever teach high school? Is that what he's talking about? Or whatever high school is called in Germany. I would like to guide them in such a way that I can again take some risks with them. These days I often recall my semesters in Freiburg. Much of what I tried there was immature and rash, but as teaching goes, the work was a matter of being swept along. 
Now it has become a matter of pulling the students along and drumming something into them. I know it won't always be like that, and the real work will always take place in solitary inquiry anyhow. You know, that's really interesting. The divide of some academics depends whether you're at a community college or university or a small liberal arts college. But I guess for academics in like, four-year universities, there is a divide between the solitary research that you do, also depending on discipline, and then your teaching responsibilities. Because I know some academics don't really like teaching, and um, some people, all they want to do is teach. So it's interesting for to hear or to read about Heidegger talking about pedagogy, etc. Since this past winter, Marburg has seemed more appealing to me, and for the first time, I am looking forward to returning. The mountains, forests, and old gardens will be beautifully adorned by the time you get back, and perhaps the atmosphere I've always found so numbing about the place will finally be driven off. But perhaps there is general stagnation at our universities. What I hear about Freiburg is just as alarming, though still preferable in the end to the many things that might be going on in Berlin. I wonder what... I'm not sure of uh, the financial background of Hannah Arendt, like her childhood family and how she grew up and if she was well off. But it's interesting that you have this professor who is older. I mean, I don't know. I'm just assuming that there is not only an age gap, but there is an economic gap, like a class gap, maybe. Um, socioeconomic, that's the right word. Maybe not class, because when you are at the university and you are intellectuals, then you kind of, in a sense, belong to the same class. But, you know, Heidegger's talking about his beautiful, like, getaway and nature in the forest, and I'm just thinking it's Hannah Arendt and, like, a, a student's dormitory or something. <laughs> like, that's great. Just rub it in. Um, I don't know. But maybe, maybe not, maybe she is well off, as well. Going on. Did you have a late winter there too, or did you really go to the lake? I looked in vain for the exact bibliographical title of Rahel's newly published correspondence with Alexander von der, von der Marwitz. The copy in the library was on loan. I would like so much to read in an entirely free way again, but I can't seem to find the time. I am slaving away on my castle lectures, which are all too, all much too difficult now. Making things more accessible is a strange business in philosophy. I love that. My professor at uh, the university just mentioned kind of offhandedly, like why we're not reading Derrida because difficult. I don't know, but I, I work at a community college and I don't know if this makes a difference, but 
I just, that's a part of teaching that I enjoy. I love, I mean, I think all teachers do, right? All professors, that's what we do. We aim to make whatever it is accessible. And I mean, I guess there are different techniques. You know, there's the let's get a philosophy textbook that's more commentary and then summarize. But then there's also, you can also make something accessible by doing a close reading and just doing a slow, close, screen shared now reading and, uh, you know, talking about just like passage by passage or like important passages. You probably can't go passage by passage unless it's just, you know, you're not trying to like have a diversity of readings, but you're just focusing on maybe one or two texts for this semester, time, you know, ladders. But I don't know, I just, pedagogical statements I love. The simpler things become, the more puzzling they remain. Nor do I want to talk the audience into believing that philosophy can answer questions. Right now it is important for me to distinguish clearly between how worldviews are formed and how scientific philosophical research works, in particular by addressing the concrete issue of the essence and meaning of history. Of course this clarification is itself only possible along scientific conceptual paths, And so my studies always end up with the lectures becoming an absurdity before a general public. But I have made a commitment and now I have to muddle through as best I can. From March 24th to 27th, I'll be visiting Herschel in Freiburg, Freiburg, and I am looking forward to that very much. Then I will go to my hometown and stay there until April 3rd. Would you want to write to me there, perhaps, and tell me about your vacation? When a storm rages outside the cabin, I remember our storm, or I walk on the quiet path along the lawn, or during a break I daydream about the young girl who, in a raincoat, her hat low over her quiet large eyes, entered my office for the first time and softly and shyly gave a brief answer to each question. And then I transpose the image to the last day of the semester, and only then do I know that life is history. I love you still, your Martin. No moral judgments. Dear Hannah, our younger son had a skiing accident, so my travel plans have gone awry. He pulled a tendon and has to stay in bed up here. Within the next few days, I will let you know whether I will be going to Meskirch. We might have to be in Freiburg for some time. Best, your Martin. Dear H, I won't be going to Meskirch as moving the little boy is rather difficult. I'll write soon. The days with Herschel were disappointing. He is very tired and aging remarkably quickly. The city is glorious again. This is April 12th, 1925. 
Dear Hannah, I live in a frenzy of work and of joy at your impending arrival. Thank you very much for your card. I have moved into an adjoining room, the former parlor. The noise from the street had become intolerable. The castle lectures turned out to be a lot of work. I'll be going to castle on the 16th and will be there until the 22nd. I'll be staying in a hotel. I don't know yet. I don't yet know which one. Will you write me or send any letters you've already written? And do you have a picture of yourself? Is your mother coming this summer? You probably will have received the pictures from Jacobi. There are a few more quite beautiful ones for you to look at. Write soon so that you will be with me at my lectures. I am spending a lot of time with Holdren and you are close to me wherever I am. I am looking forward to the summer semester so much. I won't begin before the 28th, perhaps not until May. Where will you live? And when are you coming? And then he gives his address. Dear Hannah, in a hurry, thank you so much for your letter. How wonderful that you're coming. My lectures are on the 20th and 21st in the State Library. Of course, Broker is here. I warned him that the Kunisburgers wanted to come. I did not know who you and Jacobi, maybe? So presumably we will not be able to go to Marburg together by ourselves, but we will see each other here after my lectures in the evenings at any rate. I will surely see you during the break on Monday evening. I'm lodging near Wilhelm Show Castle, very exclusive. Perhaps you can stay at the Stift. I don't know whether I will have time to pick you up. I also don't know just when you are arriving. At any rate, after the lecture, I will, as I now do every day, take leave of my acquaintances and hosts and get on the number one tram to Wilhelm Show. Wilhelm Showa, maybe? Showa? The last stop. Perhaps you can discreetly take the next tram, then I'll take you home. See you soon, your Martin. Okay, and then we have Hannah Arendt for Martin Heidegger Shadows. Such, it looks like a short story. I know that they wrote each other poems, and I've heard about, well, from the forward, forward mentioned shadows, but I don't. an appendix. The notes come before that. What am I? On 11. Okay, Arantz. So this is what we're about to read. This is Hannah Arendt's early self-reflection. The only such document by her that is known exists in two forms, handwritten and typed. The handwritten copy was used for this publication. It is a fair copy on pages that have been folded once and bound as a booklet with a cover of thin blue purple handmade cardboard. 
On the cover page is handwritten the title is the handwritten title Shadows. It is nearly certain that Arendt took this book along from Kronisberg to Castle in April 1925 and gave it to Heidegger there. It is not known how it came into her possession again. The typed version where Shadows has been corrected to the Shadows and the note written for MH has been added at the end of Arendt's handwriting. It does not differ from the handwritten version except <clears throat> that one subordinate clause and two paragraphs have been crossed out. Oh. Finally, something from Arendt. Every time she woke up from the long, dreamy, and yet deep sleep in which one merges entirely with what one dreams, she felt the same shy, hesitant tenderness toward the things of the world that made clear to her how much of her actual life had sunken completely into itself. Like sleep, one might say, if there can be anything comparable to it in normal life. How much had run its course? For already early in her life, strangeness and tenderness threatened to become inseparable. Tenderness meant shy, reticent affection, not surrendering, but a probing that was caress, joy, and surprise at strange forms. Perhaps this has all come about because in her quiet, barely awakened youth, she had encountered extraordinary and wonderful things. So she got used to dichotomizing her life with a naturalness that later almost terrified her, as a here and now and a then and there. I don't mean longing to attain any particular thing, but longing as what makes up a life, what can constitute it. Her independence and idiosyncrasy were actually based in a true passion she had conceived for anything odd. Thus, she was used to seeing something noteworthy even in what was apparently most natural and banal. Indeed, with a simplicity and ordinary, ordinariness of life struck her to the core, it did not occur to her upon reflection or even emotionally that anything she experienced could be banal, a worthless nothing that the rest of the world took for granted and that was no longer worthy of comment. Not that any of this could ever have been clear to her. The sky in her native city, which was so intimately familiar to her, was too hazy, and she was too close-minded and self-absorbed. She knew a great deal, from experience and con constant attentiveness, but everything that, had, that happened to her as a result made its way deep into her soul and remained there, isolated and sealed off. Her lack of tranquility and her close-mindedness made it impossible to respond to events, except with vague pain or a dreamy, spellbound sense of being ostracized. For all that, she did not know how to make anything of herself. She barely knew how to look out for herself, although in her condition, which could even be called bewitched, and which naturally grew to ever greater absurdities, the deeper and, in a certain sense, the more thorough she became. She no longer knew and recognized anything but herself. It was not as if something had been forgotten, but rather as if it had actually sunk. One thing lost, another vaguely rebelling, with no discipline or order. 
Her agitation, whose basis might have been nothing more than her helplessness, betrayed youth, manifested itself in her being thrown back on itself, so that she concealed and obscured both her vision of herself and her access to herself. The double nature of her being became so apparent here that she got in her own way all the more radically and blindly as she got older. This, in this spell, in the inhuman, in the absurd, she had nothing to check her, nothing to hold on to. A radical nature that always went to extremes prevented her from protecting or arming herself and never made her drain the bitterest cup to the dregs. What was good ended badly, what was bad ended well. It's hard to say which was more unbearable. For what is in fact most unbearable, it takes one's breath away so one cannot contemplate it without the infinite fear that destroys shyness and keeps one from ever feeling at ease. Is this to suffer and to know at every minute, every second, watchful and defiant that one must be grateful even for the most extreme pain. Indeed, it is such suffering that makes anything at all worthwhile. This is a really interesting idea. Again, I just have been reading and talking about Bianchel Han quite a bit. And also, oh, and when I listen to um, like meditation tracks, there's this couple that I that sometimes do like a a podcast or a talk. What is his name? But then the the guy he did, he has like these sleep meditations that I listen to. I can't remember what his name is. I think it's Michael something. Anyway, uh, I just remember a phrase that they were or an idea that they were talking about, that there's always a gift. Like in in every kind of situation, even a mishap, something painful, a sickness, maybe even trauma, there is a gift. What is the gift in it? And I guess it's more of a perspective that kind of helps you be resilient. I'm always a slightly cautious of the idea that, or the articulation that everything happens for a reason, or we should be grateful and thankful for various harm that comes to us. I think that's a, a big ask for, for people. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily what the, you know, when people mention this, I just think that that's the, that's the path that it can go. That's the direction that it can take. What I think is maybe a potentially healthier way to find a space of resilience after something or when reflecting on trauma or reflecting on something, being in the situation of something challenging. I think it's just to focus on the beauty of the self, the beauty of the human being that is able 
to be resilient, is able to, in some sort of alchemy, transform what is difficult or challenging into something beautiful in order to maybe escape a victim mentality. It's not to, I think we have to be careful, especially when there's other people involved that are harming us. Sometimes there are no people involved, but it's not to take responsibility, the, to- the, the completeness or the totality of responsibility or to feel grateful for, I think it's most harmful when there's someone else involved that someone has harmed us or abused us, but it's, it's to, to refocus on ourselves, which is really what you need to do in that situation anyway, right? Like to not, to not allow that memory to continue to have control over you. But in terms of situations where it's not a person, maybe it's like, you know, just an accident or a sickness or natural disaster, I think it's still helpful to just look upon the self. I don't need to say more than that. So there was no escaping into refinement and taste. What would such an escape be worth? How could anything depend on it when each and everything became decisive and struck a defenseless person and didn't and yet didn't strike her because she did not belong to anything? anywhere ever. At the same time, her sensitivity and vulnerability, which had always given her an exclusive air, grew to almost grotesque proportions. Since she could not and did not want to protect herself, a deadly fear of being sheltered, combined with an almost calculated expectation of callousness, made the simplest, most natural things in life increasingly possible for her. Interesting. So she has kind of an independent streak. Okay, good for her. In the shy, austere morning of her young life, when she had not yet fallen out with the hesitant tenderness that was the manner and expression of her innermost being, portions of reality had become accessible to her in her dreams. In those painful and joyful dreams that sweet or bitter are filled with a steady living bliss, later full of a strange, violently destructive desire for power, she ruined and rejected her youthful kingdom as a lie, as inaccessible. Those dreams then abandoned a woman entrapped in herself, and this abject woman was overcome by fear of reality. The meaningless, baseless, empty fear whose blind gaze turns everything into nothing. The fear that is madness, joylessness, distress, annihilation. With this fear, nothing is more frightening, more fatal than one's own reflection. And that is both its characteristic and at the same time, a sign of its shame. But what could appear even more horrifying, more incomprehensible to her than her own reality? She had fallen prey to fear as she once had to longing, and again, not to some 
identifiable fear of something determined in any particular way, but fear of existence itself. She had known this fear before, as she had known many things. Now she was its prey. That's interesting. So this is probably a text that I have to really read slowly and silently to analyze and comprehend, but is she talking here, first of all, of sort of the regret that maybe some of us can have when we think back on sort of our open and carefree selves that were completely vulnerable, but at the same time fearless and invincible in a sense and then when we become too self-protected it feels as if we are holding back our exuberant emotions that's what i think i'm getting from the first part of this the earlier part and now i wonder if she's talking about what heidegger discusses in being in time as this sort of existential anxiety for life. She is sort of expressing herself as an example. Perhaps this change from longing to fear brought about by the destructive desire for power, this slavish, tyrannical self-violation might seem clearer, more comprehensible, when one considers that, at least in part, an age that was so depraved and hopeless also created opportunities for monstrousness, all the more as a naturally fastidious and cultivated taste more fiercely and consciously resisted the loud, extreme, and desperate efforts of an art, literature, and culture that were, base, that were basely and mindlessly pursuing their illusory existence and extravagance that verged on shamelessness. That's interesting. I wonder if we can be sort of self-judgmental about our ambitions. And I just see that she's kind of characterizing her, what does she call it? Her something for power, her destructive drive for power. I mean, that might be true. Who am I to say? Maybe she's, you know doing some honest self-reflecting. But I think that also, sometimes we can gaslight ourselves um, concerning, and you know, I hesitate to say mostly women, but maybe in the time that she's writing, regardless of gender, some people can even self-sabotage themselves, can self-sabotage when they see that they are expressing desire, when they're going after what they want. It's hard to know sometimes if you should rein yourself back or if it's the ego taking control or 
if there's something that's maybe not virtuous or however you want to say it. I just I just wonder if she's being a little more self-critical than she should. I also think it's interesting that she's critiquing her culture and not if if the judgment, the self-judgment holds on this destructive desire for power. She's also placing, it seems like, the responsibility on culture in various facets, like art, literature, etc., to kind of propagate this characteristic or desire, which I think is really interesting. I was just watching a little bit of... It's not a very good example for me because I, I don't necessarily, I'm not super familiar with like the actor or whatever show he was in. Someone named Cole Sprouse, who is maybe, I think he was like an actor in a Disney movie. He's doing interviews now and he is commenting on Hollywood. And he's he says that like that career path, acting Hollywood and his experience perpetuates and extracts, I think the quote was, greediness and narcissism out of people. I mean, definitely, I think that the culture and the time that we grow up, in which we grow up, can influence us and bring out different characteristics. I mean, just like your childhood can, just like your group of friends can. So I just, I don't know. I love how much she's packing in here. Interesting that she is, it's kind of like an autobiographical, that's what I'm seeing, an autobiographical piece, but written in the third person to create maybe some distance. But clearly this is just an attempt to explain the occasion, to make it more humanly accessible in a sense, beyond the personal and the intimate. And just as clearly, the potential for such despair is within the realm of the human. Awake at every moment and available like any other potential. Only from this perspective can the ominous and ghostly side of the process really be understood. There may have been something identical about the way she fell prey to fear and to longing. Name, interesting that there's those, there's that duo right there, fear and longing. Can you experience longing and fear at the same time? Namely, the act of falling prey to something, of being trapped in a craving. That fixation on a single thing, when the empty gaze forgets multiplicity or, taken over by craving and passion, 
considers nothing else. But that longing may also have opened up empires for her, strange, colorful empires she was at home in and could love with the living bliss that never changes. And the fear may have numbly excluded everything, taken her breath away and left her petrified in her very own sense of being hunted. So if someone were to assent that she had become uglier and more ordinary to the point of apathy and impropriety, well, that must be granted. But only so long as her freedom to remain indifferent to such appraisal is also granted. Let the haters roll off. The rigidity, the sense of being hunted, that's such a ominous kind of rhetoric that she's engaging with. So the joy and suffering, pain and despair ran through her as if she were dead flesh, obliterated all reality. It caused the, presence, the present to shrivel, as it were, and the only thing that remained certain was that everything comes to an end. So her radical nature, which once made it possible for her to bear and maintain the greatest extremes had changed. And she felt as if everything were now slipping away, vanishing, except when she tried to ingratiate herself with submissive friendliness, pale and colorless, with the hidden uncanniness of a shadow stealing across the path. Perhaps her youth will struggle free of the spell, perhaps her soul will realize what it is to speak out and to be released under a different sky and thus overcome sickness and confusion and learn, and learn patience and the simplicity and freedom of organic growth. Oh, this is so beautiful. But more likely, she will continue to pursue her life in idle experiments and a curiosity without rights or foundation until finally the long and eagerly awaited end takes her unawares, putting an arbitrary stop to her useless activity. Oh, the nihilism at the end. <laughs> like, I mean, or realism, really. It's just so beautiful. What is this next one? Okay. I was just wondering if the next uh, letter from Heidegger is Heidegger commenting on that. Well, I think that's a good place to stop because I'm going to have to read that again on my own. Arendt's Shadows. It's such a gorgeous way of self-reflecting and journaling and trying to comment and articulate one's experience and attitude toward the self, one's fears and in that as well desires and it's interesting that she was also talking about her dreams um i'm definitely gonna have to go over that part i think it's interesting to explore dreams because for whatever we can make of them there are stories that are subconscious, is there a better word for it? Our subconscious is manifesting 
you know and I think that because they are so bizarre and sort of transcend maybe not a linear narrative because there there is that's why it's a story there is some linear quality to the stories but time and space are I think transcended and, and stretched and pushed in strange ways and I just think that they're very symbolic and I was reading so there's this book by a Jewish French woman who I think like is somewhat contemporary I don't think she's living any right now well wait okay hold on the ideas came from this French Jewish woman and then her sort of mentee wrote a book is living and um, she is teaching and she writes books on dreams from a lens of the of like the ideas of the Kabbalah and she says one way to I guess make use of dreams because so a lot of times I think fears come up in dreams people have I don't know if like everyone wants to call them nightmares depending on how you know traumatizing they are but they're a little strange and you know there might be uh you're running from an apocalypse or you're just someone's chasing you in general or um there's violation of some sort uh you know etc like whatever can happen in dreams sometimes like nice pleasant dreams happen too but though particularly those dreams that we feel like there's fear or we're running away from something or someone's hurting us she has this uh, suggestion to remember those dreams so it's first of all it's important to practice remembering your dreams you know with the dream journal or she says that the best way to, to remember your dreams is to when you wake up to stay in that position in bed and you know if you're like on your side or what like try not to move and try to rehearse the dream that you just had. And then uh, when you feel like you've grasped it, uh, then go to your dream journal and, and write everything down. Sometimes, you know, you don't even have to do that because dreams are so vibrant. And uh, whatever happens, you can rehearse that in uh, at some point in your day and repetitively, but not just repeat what it is. Give yourself the tools that you need to encounter and defeat whatever is happening. Like for instance, um, once I was, okay, so this dream, I can't remember all of it right now, but I think I was walking along a path like maybe I was staying in a hotel and I was walking along a path and I was thinking, oh, I, uh, well, there was someone driving behind me, like a car that was slowing down. And then this guy asked if I wanted a ride and I thought, well, okay, I will take the ride because I really have a long ways to go. This isn't my dream. 
And, uh, and so as we were driving, I felt, my dream self, felt a sense of fear because I was wondering if he was actually going to take me where I needed to go, you know, like, did I just put myself in a precarious situation? And then the dream, it actually worked out fine. Um, he did. I think I was, I don't, I don't, I really don't know. I mean, sometimes dreams are nonsensical. I think I was like picking up my suitcases from somewhere or I don't know. But the next thing I remember is that we were back in my hotel and he was helping me bring my suitcases in and we were having like a friendly chat and he was like not a bad person at all. But I thought like, how could I make this dream more empowering to me so I don't experience that fear, so I'm not in a precarious situation where I just stupidly, you know, like uh, get in someone's car. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna reimagine this dream, but I'm gonna have a car. Like I'm gonna have my own car. And so I reimagined myself um, walking out of my hotel, looking at the sidewalk that in my actual dream I was walking down and then seeing a car appear in front of me and then getting in it and it was my car and I'm just driving to wherever so I have complete confidence and I feel safe. So this is kind of an example or if it's an apocalypse then I don't know what you could do. You could have you could have whatever powers you need to it's it's your dream state that you're reimagining. And okay, I very much have to end this soon. Um, Anchor only gives me an hour, and I think I'm past that because I paused a couple of times. But I think you get it. Like you can, you can have whatever power. You can have the power of you can fly, you can escape, or you can uh, erase your, vic- your not your victims, your what is it called? Villains. Like something with a V. You can erase the villains, or you can have a sword, or you can have a magic wand, or you can your words can be really powerful, but whatever it is, you can you just uh you just change it, you revise the dream. And so hopefully your subconscious, I mean actually I don't know because I haven't finished the book, but I guess that this affects your waking life and your dream life, and it's supposed to be kind of like a yeah, I don't know. I have to finish the book, but the instructions make sense to me. So I think that's that's really interesting. I mean, I don't know how much that relates to what Arendt is is saying about dreams, but um, like I said, I just want to go back and read it. So I think that I will continue reading from these letters because they give me so much happiness. And also, it's just really hard to be motivated when I'm most motivated to read and to study and to be productive when I can go out on my balcony and it's sunny and it's not windy. And I don't know why. I can read for hours and hours when um, I'm outside and it's sunny. But when it's just overcast and, I don't know, horrible outside. So the other books that I have, I have this one by... Um, Elsbieta, is that how you say her name? Elsbieta Edinger. I know it's actually pretty famous, so I'm like embarrassed that I don't know her name. That's just a, yeah, Elsbieta, that's what it is. So this Hannah Arendt and Heidegger, it's, it's a story. So it's based on letters, but uh, it's like a narrative form. And then I also have this one by Antonia Brunenberg. A history of love. Um, 
pictures and things like that. So I don't know, but it'll be a while. It will be a while before I can't talk. Um, I read those probably because I just have so much to read and you just, it's so hard to finish a book when you are in a college class because you have to read something new every week and I don't know, but it's wonderful. I love, I love, love, love being back in a student's position and being in college. It's, it's so much fun. Like it's as great or better than I remember it. So I'm just, I don't know. I'm just a nerd. So I'm, but I mean, why, why not? Why not just get many degrees? I don't know. It's going to take me probably like 30 years to get a second PhD because um, I'm having to do it just how I'm having to do it, but whatever, I don't care. It's, it's the joy of it anyway. All right, I will see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. Recording stopped.